This episode is brought to you by The Hartford, a leading provider of employee benefits and income protection products that is dedicated to standing behind U.S. workers to help them pursue their goals and get through tough times. For more information about The Hartford, visit thehartford.com slash employee benefits. We've also got a link in our show notes. A quick warning. This episode contains material not suitable for children. When I arrive in Modesto, Carol is still in the ICU. And she's doing better and breathing without the aid of a respirator. But even if Carol wants to talk, she's unable to. As of today, she does not have a voice. Oh, from the... Yeah. That's Kimmer, Carol's daughter. We meet in the office of Kimmer's graphic design and printing business. It's nestled in a sleepy old strip mall with a pie shop that's open three hours a day, four days a week. Kimmer's space is clean and organized, with lively examples of her print work all over her walls. Picture open house flyers and ads for local restaurants. I bring with me a three-ring binder of printed-out PDFs of the Silver Chain's newsletters, hoping to discuss Carol's many contributions. These are all articles that either your mom or dad wrote, And then the yellow tabs, in case you want to see some pictures, those are personalities of the month. So these are, okay, so Carol P. Yeah. I wonder how they set this. You know? Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of different fonts, too. Right, and I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. Because that was before computers. And then they folded them and, and put them in uh, an envelope. Wow. Just wow. So you've had fun reading all this crap? Yeah. <laughs> in case you haven't noticed, Kimmer has a gruff sense of humor. But all that softens when we discuss her mom. I would really, really love mom to come out of what she's in and actually come back to life. Yeah. I think that um, this proves that she's got a lot to offer. It really does. It really does. Beyond the male myth discussed by New Horizons. That's your mom. Yep. I'm really hoping that... uh, She chooses to live. So far, she is not. Do you want to give her this? Do you really want to give it to me to give to her? Yeah. It would be fun to talk to her about it. I'm Paul Diddy, and this is Time Capsule, The Silver Chain. So I leave Kimmer with my binder of newsletters, and I gotta tell you, I feel like I'm missing something on my flight home. And it's because at this point, these newsletters have been by my side for months. It's weird not having them. But if this archive of a part of Carol's life sparks something in her, it's totally worth it. However, I'm also at a point where all I can do is wait. So I pivot and I make more phone calls to suspected Silver Chain members. And for the most part, it's just more of the same. We're sorry. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. And then, lightning literally strikes twice, because I find two former Silver Chain members who are still alive and willing to speak with me. Both of them still live in the Twin Cities, which is one of my favorite places to visit. It totally brings me back to my childhood when traveling from small-town Bemidji to the Minneapolis-St. Paul area to see my Grandma Trudy was the closest I got to the cosmopolitan life all my favorite TV shows depicted. Grandma Trudy lived in Richfield, a suburb just west of Bloomington, home of the Silver Chain. Grandma Trudy was fabulous. She was glamorous, 
She was a real-life Mary Richards, a queen of crafts, a garage sailor, and the first woman in Bemidji to get a divorce and then get the hell out of town to start over in the big city. Or a suburb next to the big city. Same thing when you're a small-town kid. Grandma Trudy died in 2015, but if she were still alive, she'd be the same age as the women I'm about to meet. Our first interview is with a woman who makes regular appearances in the newsletters, a woman named Helen, who's even featured as a personality of the month, where she's profiled as a mother of two who enjoys camping, sunbathing, and occasionally her husband. But today, Helen is no longer able to enjoy her husband, even on occasion, because she's widowed. And during our many phone conversations before I make my trip, Helen is sure to tell me what a good Christian woman she is. So this should make our conversation about the silver chain interesting, to say the least. The night before we are to meet in person, I review questions with my producers, Nora and Jaka. And then I call Helen to both confirm the interview time and see what I can bring for lunch. The next day, as I'm waiting for our lunch order at the deli, I get a text from Nora. Hey, Paul, it's Nora. Helen isn't coming to the door. You don't think she's ghosting us, do you? Uh, I can't imagine her doing that. Hold on, let me give her a call. After several rings, Helen does eventually answer her phone. And then, the door. When I get there, Helen seems much older than she did over the phone. And she's still surprised to see us, even though we talked just one day earlier. She puts in her hearing aids and sets her chicken parmesan sandwiches on her finest china while Nora and Jaka set up the recording equipment. A calendar beside her phone has Lunch with Paul written in beautiful cursive on the day we're meeting. It's the only appointment for the entire month. And at first, the conversation seems fine. Oh yeah, we did a lot of dancing. He... We, he he loved to dance, I loved to dance, and... Uh, but once we begin to talk about the silver chain, was, things unravel quickly. He was, he was, it's evident he was, that Helen is suffering from memory loss. He was a, he was and the only dancer. time any light flickers and in her eyes he, he is when I share copies of the silver chain's and, newsletters. Oh, he, he, I even think maybe we're on to something, he, he could, until she says... Oh. So you got into that silver chain, too? That's right. Helen thinks I'm a member of the Silver Chain. So no, this is not an interview that I can do, at least not for the podcast. We cut the recording and just sit and visit for the next half hour. We talk about the neighborhood, her kids, and before we leave, we take care of the dishes overflowing from her sink to the stove. And when we leave, I feel incredibly sad and really fucking gross. Because the conversations Helen and I had on the phone, they were just brief enough for her to put up a good front. But in person, it's clear that this woman should not be living on her own, and that a total stranger should definitely not be buying her lunch and asking about her swinging past. And yes, I knew that the people I'd be interviewing were in their 80s, but in the years since my grandmother died... I guess I've forgotten just how brutal and lonely that age can be. This has me super apprehensive about my interview with Diana the following day. I'm thinking, can I even do this? But I'm already here, so don't I kind of have to? The first time I read about Diana is in a January 1977 newsletter recapping the club's third anniversary dance. It's the Saturday of Super Bowl weekend and the temperature in the Twin Cities is 32 degrees below zero. But even that doesn't stop 90 couples from arriving at the Thunderbird Motel to attend the Soiree of the Year. That night, Diana and her husband Chuck are awarded a magnum of champagne for attending every single dance in 1976. Chuck's a photographer by hobby and snaps pictures throughout the night for upcoming newsletters. And Diana is known for her dancing. 
and her outfits. In one newsletter, there's even a photo of her entertaining the crowd at a silver chain party with a belly dance. In the photo, Diana is on the dance floor in a beaded bedlaw on her knees, back arched and arms stretched out for the show-stopping performance. This is an image of someone in total control, aware of their talent and looks. Someone who appears in that moment to be completely fearless. Okay, I I have a picture of me in this beautiful red dress. Pretty sexy. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I read in, in the newsletters, I'll share them with you, but there are multiple times where... You know, they're they're describing your outfit. Really? Yeah, in, in detail. Oh like, my goodness. Yeah. It's a gorgeous sunny day when Nora, Jaka, and myself meet Diana in her lakeside townhome in suburban St. Paul. And even though I'm still pretty gutted from my meeting with Helen, after reading all about Diana in the newsletters, I can't help but be excited to meet her. Once again, I have a long list of questions, and I'm hoping Diana will have the tea. But instead... She serves Country Time Lemonade. And this is fitting because Diana's place, it's a grandmother's dream home. Yeah, I do too. I kind of like, you know, uh, the old-fashioned, um, early mm-hmm. American styles and stuff. And so George was okay with picking If I were a real estate home. agent selling this home, I'd rave about the large windows and breathtaking lake views. The cozy wall-to-wall blue carpeting and the super cute wallpaper border of geese wearing bonnets. And during the open house, I'd pitch the home as an artist's lakeside hideaway, because on every wall, in every corner of this home, there are paintings of waterfalls, birch groves, swans, and daffodils, all created by Diana herself. I've done in crocheting, embroidery, Needle felting, and I paint either by oil or by acrylics. Now I blend. I start with acrylics now because they dry quicker, so I can get the background in, mm-hmm. and then I can work on top of that, which makes for a quicker painting. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so this home feels safe and comfortable, and way more like what I imagine the setting for my interviews to be. A cat passes in and out of the living room as Diana settles into her lazy boy recliner. And despite my long list of questions, Diana's story needs no prompting. In fact, we've barely hit record when she begins to tell me all about how she first met Chuck. I had worked at 3M, and so I was in the chorus, the women's chorus. And the women's chorus and the men's chorus were separate, but then we would sing together at holidays in the spring. And so... I had talked to talking to this Chuck, and he seemed nice, and he talked and so forth, and it was just somebody to kind of talk to. But um, being naive and the rebound, we ended up together. Like Helen, Diana is also in her 80s, and she's from a generation where a majority of women lived with their parents until they fell in love and got married. Or, in Diana's case... I married him because I was pregnant and I had to marry him. And that's why, because I never really loved him. I didn't know what love was. I liked him. I had my first baby and we were renting a place and he said, gee, I wish I could afford to have drink anytime I wanted to. You know, and here I am, you know, about 22 years old. That was the first clue. And so as the years goes on, this drinking worse. And then we, the marriage was controlling. He was controlling. He controlled the money. And I had to ask for money to buy this or that or the other thing. And so that was, that was part of one of the things that just drive, started driving me crazy. Um, so it was controlling. And being a dependent person, you go along with the flow. And you don't think too much of it until things start getting bad and you start standing up for yourself. And that's when I had my second child. Well, then the drinking progressed to um, abuse and 
there was emotional abuse, and he took a swing at me one time downstairs. So I called the police, and he went and made himself a drink and sat on the deck. Of course, they wouldn't do anything. I was, of course, I was afraid, like most women are, to press charges for fear that it would escalate into something even more so. But after they had caught him, they talked to him. Any other time that he came at me, I, he like this, I said, you just go right ahead. I'll have you in jail faster than you can turn around because I will call the cops and I will press charges. And he never dared to hit me again. How did you feel after asserting yourself that way? I felt good. I felt strong. You know, I felt, okay, I can stand up for myself. I never thought I could, but yeah, it felt good. Okay, once again, this is not what I expected. I really want to ask Diana my list of questions. And for those of you who have been waiting to hear all the sordid details of how the swinging lifestyle worked and what really went on during those basement parties, well, I'm sorry, but for now, you're going to have to use your imagination because at what point do I interrupt an 80-year-old woman who is telling me something far more personal and intimate than any story about swinging? But finally, after a lot of conversation, I try and do just that and I approach the real reason for my visit. How did you first hear about the silver chain? Uh, I honestly do not know. Um, Chuck probably heard about it some through somebody. I, I know Dorothea was in chorus at the same time I was, and I don't know if it was through them or somebody else. I just remember that uh, this was something he wanted to do, and it was a social life until, you know, that's when things started going really down the hill. So, from the newsletters, it looks like Diana is having the time of her life in the silver chain. She's getting awards for being the best dancer. She's constantly recognized for all of her artistic talents. And she's written up practically monthly for all those fabulous outfits, most of which she made herself. I enjoyed being in the social group, especially when we, you know, went to dance parties and Stuff like that. I enjoyed being around other people. I always enjoyed being around other people, which I think helped. Just, you know, it's the intimate thing that bothered me. But otherwise, I enjoyed being with the group. They were a pleasant group to be with and, and uh, you know, liked getting out and doing things like that. You know, they let me belly dance and all that sort of jazz. It was just the, the home parties I did not want to participate in. The the home part. What what do you, what are the well, home parties? Our home parties are when the swinging took place. When you go to these dances, there's definitely, you know, you're oh, at, you're, you're free and yeah, and and you know you're not committed to doing anything, right? You know, you're just having a good time. You're laughing and, and dancing and whatever, or drink whatever you're doing. But like you say, when you walk into a home, you know what's expected. And I was not real comfortable with that. But there would be only maybe one or two people that I would even allow to get close to me. It was just expected. Uh, I was expected to go with him. So I was expected to participate, but I would just be maybe one person. Did you feel like there were 
like emotional or personal connections with any of the people you met? Uh, the men? Yeah. No. No personal connections. I mean, I may have liked them, but mm-hmm. I just kind of did it because it was expected of me. And I only did it with an individual that I liked, but I, you know, and I didn't move any of the guys, but okay, I like so-and-so, we'll do this. But um, I had no feeling for them. Yeah. What was Chuck's mood like attending the parties? I don't know. I guess he liked it. I mean, that's why he wanted to go, you know. But uh, I don't know. Maybe he felt that I didn't give him enough or something. He needed more. Mm-hmm. He wanted me to make the phone calls, invite people over. Okay. That's it. Why did he ask you to do it? <laughs> because he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to call anybody. He didn't want to do it. So you do it. Uh, but sometimes he would invite people over and the kids were there to your house yes and i didn't want you know we would be downstairs but you know kids are up there and i did not was not happy with that surprise surprise swinging did not save diana from an abusive marriage And as much as I want to imagine Diana swooping down the staircase in a designer gown and flinging divorce papers at Chuck, that is not how it goes down. Instead, it's Christmas 1978. Diana's making cinnamon rolls, rocking around the Christmas tree is playing in the background, and it's Chuck who serves Diana the papers. Were other people in the room? I'm a folks were, yeah. Everybody was in the room. It was Christmas. Everybody, including Diana and Chuck's sons. So 1979 rolls around. Chuck moves out, and it's just Diana and her boys. For the first time in Diana's life, she's not living under the roof of her parents or husband. She's forging a life all her own, just like Grandma Trudy did only a few years earlier. But as a kid, I never considered the consequences or the challenges. When did you have your first uh, checking account? Uh, let's see. Um, probably after the divorce. Because I had to get my money from him. He gave me so much each week, so I don't think I had my own checking So when I had got divorced, I had to have a checking account. And that's probably when I opened one up. After all that time being in an unhappy marriage, Diana's primary focus the following years is on raising her boys. A relationship is the last thing on her mind. But then, both sons grow up and move out of the house. And Diana once again finds herself joining a social club. Only this time, it's a singles group at her church. Which was kind of fun because they had a fellow who would teach us ballroom dancing and then we'd go to Withrow and have a good time. That's great. On Fridays. And so then I said, well, maybe there's something I can do to kind of pay back. So I asked the gal, I said, uh, uh, what about the newsletter? Can I help you out? And I was putting the labels on this little newsletter, you know, and I see George's name pop up. And I thought, Oh, could that be the same George I knew in high school who I had dated? And of course, we have the old-fashioned phone book. And I looked it up and looked, and there was only one George in all of Matamita and White Bear. So anyway, it took me three days to get up the courage. I kept telling myself, it's the 90s. I can do this. Yes, Diana, you can do this. As one would expect from any woman of the 90s, Diana channels her inner Amanda Woodward and makes the call. She and George reunite at Chili's. They get baby backs, and Diana gets her baby back. The feeling that I felt for George, it was just, I couldn't believe it. I thought, who knows what love really is, but it was just... A, a sensation in my body, in my mind. 
that I really love this guy. That's wonderful. And and uh, so and that was after a couple of weeks. That's why at 18 months I said, I can't wait. I'm getting older. You know, I got to ask this guy to marry me. <laughs> so that's why I asked him to marry me. <laughs> Guess what? George totally says yes. The two marry by the very townhome we're sitting in and travel the world. For 25 years, this is their life. And I mean, let's face it. If anyone deserves happiness, it's Diana. I lost my husband uh, in 15, so I was seven years ago. and I'm not signing up any dating nips. No. <laughs> but I wish you'd love to meet someone to just go to the theater with, take a day trip out someplace, you know, drive down the road for a day trip or, or that kind of thing, you know, just, just, just to hang out with, male or female, actually, would be fun. That's why these groups are so important to me. By these groups, Diana is talking about social clubs because the one thing that Diana has always loved even back in her days in the Silver Chain, is the opportunity to connect and meet others. We'd have the Red Hats group, and we used to have a big group that get together once a month for lunch. Well, now COVID hit, so there's just uh, nine or ten of us that this during the summer we would get together and eat in the park. Diana's energy, her zest for both life and crafting, it's like a visit with Grandma Trudy. It actually makes me realize not only how much I miss her, but also how incredibly bold she was to make the choices she did. And here in Diana's cozy home, it's almost like there's a part of Grandma Trudy that's still alive. And there's something about Diana that draws Nora and Jaka in as well. Even when the discussion about the silver chain is over, they don't want to leave either. Which is why when Diana offers a tour of her basement art studio... We eagerly accept. Yeah, I guess it's a real disaster down here. I've been down for a while, and I have no place to put my peas. It's nice and cool down here. Yeah. Okay, over there. Do you want me to help at all? Um, let's see. Do you want to lift some of these? Okay, let me see here. I'm looking for the small one. All of these paintings have price tags on them. Everything's for sale. Between myself and Nora and Jaka, we all want to splurge on Diana's crafts. But Diana doesn't take Venmo. So we settle on the adorable felt animals residing on her dining room table. That's beautiful. I want the little chipmunk. Paul's going to buy it for me. He's bankrolling this. Are we going to the studio? I have fifty dollars. Okay. This is fifty-five. <laughs> yeah, we have to come. Okay, back. we're gonna come back. Oh, um, all right. We're coming. Yeah. Sorry, Diana. Diana walks us out with a new pep in her step, likely because she just got fifty bucks out of me. And honestly, I don't feel like this interview would be complete without a proper Minnesota goodbye. For those of you who aren't in the know, a Minnesota goodbye involves a walk out to the car, continuing the conversation. Maybe even getting into your car and rolling down the window to talk a little bit more. This is a long-running joke for a lot of Minnesotans. But what I've found is that in most cases, it's the goodbye where the most meaningful conversation happens. I didn't expect to tell my whole life story about my, my ex and my husband and all this sort of jazz and how I grew. <laughs> it's a really like inspiring story, actually. Yeah, it is. It is. That was really amazing. Well, you know, that's probably some of that I would, wouldn't mind having the kids know about. Yeah. yeah. How yeah. mom went from dependent to a strong will. It's a big deal. Oh, hi. Hey. Diana's so sweet. She totally she is. She's so sweet. That was such a good conversation. I'm worried 
Like, I don't know, based on yesterday and today, I don't know that we have enough. Yeah, I know. It's like, like these two women were the ones that I was banking on to either open the story up for us or to be able to form a connection or a relationship with them where they felt comfortable enough to potentially introduce me to other people that might be willing to talk. And that's not the case with either of them. No. I mean, and then I also feel horrible for Diana. Like, I, I mean, I feel like we just met this woman that's really wonderful and, you know, she's alone. Like, she has trouble finding friends. She, you know, it's like she can't get anyone to do an art exhibit for her. And I just want to, I just want to, like, I want to do everything for her. And that's not related to the silver chain. It's just, here's this woman that, you know, obviously. Related to your humanity. Yeah. Which is, I know, I know. She's like a lovely person, an interesting person. But where it stands now, we don't have enough to commit to making a podcast about this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Can you hear my disappointment in that moment? It is excruciating for me to consider that this isn't enough for me to go on. But I also can't force a story that at this point doesn't exist. Or that time has simply erased. Maybe that part of my life is something I I don't care if I remember it. And maybe that's part of it. I you know, it's versus part of my life that I'm not real proud of. So I'm driving, and a block from my hotel, just across the street from Minnesota's only IKEA, is a massive empty plot of land with freshly mowed grass. The only clue as to what it once was is a street sign attached to the stoplight. A sign that says Thunderbird Road. So this is it. This is where the Thunderbird Motel was. This is where it all happened. That magical Arctic winter night in 1977. And here I am now looking at this empty space and hoping something will spring to life kind of the same way I'm doing with the newsletters. And after speaking with Diana, I'm realizing the story might not even be close to what I imagined it to be. But even though it's not what I imagined it to be, isn't it still worth telling? The night after meeting Diana, I continue grappling with the idea that the story I so badly wanted and expected to hear might not actually exist, and that if I want to continue on this search, I have to be prepared to tell a story where I, a fiction writer, have zero control of the narrative. And that's assuming that anyone else will actually talk to me. From my hotel, I attempt to reach a few other members in the area, and I have zero luck. Until I reach a guy... We're going to call Bill. It took me a few minutes to figure that that it was that was connected with their swinging. It took me a few minutes because I ne- because I like I said I never specifically knew about something called silver chain until until your call. So right when you told me about the dances and then I could easily connect it up with you know with with that part of their lives. So I and I and I didn't know if you knew. <laughs> that they were swingers, and you didn't know if I knew, so that I know we had to kind of like gingerly. It was a little bit of a dance of its own. Yes, it was. <laughs> I call Bill in the hopes of tracking down his mother, Janet. In 1974, Janet was the very first Silver Chain personality of the year. A newsletter commemorating the honor captures Janet, seated in a wicker peacock chair with dark wavy hair cascading down her shoulders. 
and bright eyes that even in an old pixelated photo remain electric. I feel like Bill and I click instantly. It's amazing to talk with someone who understands why I'm so interested in this group. Bill even agrees to facilitate an online interview with Janet, who now lives in Florida. You'll hear Bill laughing or commenting in the background on occasion, helping his 84-year-old mom, who's hard of hearing, navigate my questions. Janet begins her story in 1957 at the University of Minnesota. He said, the only reason you want to go to college is to find a husband. And I said, you're right. I said, I want a college-educated husband because ultimately I want college-educated kids, you know. (laughs) And I want to make sure that I'm up to it. So I always worked and always had a job, sometimes two or three, and made my way through college. And then I met my husband, actually, like the first day I went to college in an anthropology class. He just seemed very friendly, and uh, we got to talking. It was a big class, you know, a big auditorium. I already had several other guys I dated ask me if I wanted to marry them, and I said, no, I'm not ready to get married, but my husband never asked. And I finally said, if you don't ask me to marry you pretty soon, go away. (laughs) You know, typical college life, men falling all over you with marriage proposals. Soon after marrying, Hal joins the military and the two of them move from Minnesota to Texas to Alaska. The plan is to return to Minnesota, where Janet will put her psychology degree to work and the two of them will buy their first house. My father-in-law and husband were supposed to go out looking for a house, but instead they went out looking at apartment buildings, and they decided that we should buy an apartment building with my money. And so instead of being a psychologist, I guess I used it running the building, my college education. And it turned out our place had a name, but everybody always referred to it as Widow's Manor because that's all we had primarily as widows in the building. And um, then I got pregnant, and I'd learned how to rent apartments, and I'd learned how to take care of doing the books. So everything's coming up roses for Janet. She is running things. That idyllic suburban life, Janet's got her own version of it. Until one day, when Hal gets reacquainted with an old friend. And we went to his house, and I thought this was a strange kind of party because it seemed like some of the people were disappearing, and then they'd come back a little later. And they were going upstairs, you know. And I thought, okay, maybe they're just going up there to neck or, you know, who knows. Well, actually, unbeknownst to me, they were... I guess what are now known as swingers. Janet doesn't think much of it. It's definitely not her cup of tea. And besides, she has other plans for her life, like raising her son, collecting rent from widows, even thinking about maybe having another baby. And Hal, well, he does what many married men do in the prime of their lives, at least in the 1970s. He starts a poker night with a group of his friends. They were playing that on a regular basis. And then one night something happened at the apartment building that I needed Hal's info on in order to take care of the problem because his mom and dad weren't around either. So I called where he was supposed to be playing poker and Charlie says, oh, well, we haven't played poker for about four weeks. And I said, oh, really? And so I went over to this friend's house where I knew they had these parties. It was kind of late, though, because it was close to midnight, and there wasn't any parties going on, but I rang the doorbell, and I said to him, have you seen Hal? I said, I know you must have, because I'm pretty sure that was his car I see out here. And he says, yeah, he's here. And I says, I need to talk to him. And he says, He's with someone. I says, I'm pretty sure he is. And I went upstairs where he was in bed with some other woman. And that pretty much 
did me in. After Janet finds Hal in bed with another woman, she is pissed. She goes back to the apartment, packs a suitcase, and leaves with Billy. I disappeared from uh, him and his family for, oh, I don't know, about a week or more. And finally, his mom and dad said, what the heck is going on? And he says, I don't know. She's mad about something. (laughs) Something. Yeah, something. So I went back, and we went to a marriage counselor, I guess you'd call it. And actually, he was no help at all. He just said, you'll have to work this problem out yourself. (laughs) And Hal had told me after we saw the counselor that um, he wasn't going to stop seeing other women occasionally. And I said, okay, well, maybe I'll find somebody too. And then I was at the mall, and this two guys were coming down the road, and they stopped, and they talked to me for a little bit. And then one guy says, I really like you. I'd like to know you better. Can I have your phone number? So I'd given it to him. Now, this is in the time of mini skirts and high boots and long hair, and that's what I look like. Mini skirts, high boots, long, long hair. <laughs> and the guy says, okay, um, I'll give you a call. So he called, and we got together, and we started having a relationship. And the guy was very handsome. Looked a lot like Robert Redford. (laughs) Robert Redford, as in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid era Redford. I don't think there's a more ultimate 1970s thirst trap, and there's definitely not for Janet. In a matter of weeks, she tells Hal all about her new beau. He said, I'd like to meet him. I said, well, I don't know if he'll do that. I said, I don't think his wife has any idea he's coming over here, and he wouldn't want it to be known. But anyway, eventually, he did meet my husband. And after that, my husband decided that maybe he didn't need to see other women separately. Oh, that Janet, turning the tables on Hal. It sounds like Hal suddenly realized, oh, wait, it doesn't feel so good to find out that your spouse is having an affair with some stranger, especially when they look like Robert Redford, a man who literally picked up your wife at the mall while she was hanging out with your son. This has got to be where Hal commits to monogamy. But no. Hal instead gets another idea. He proposes that they see other people by doing the one thing that Janet wasn't interested in in the first place. He suggests that they swing. Because you see, to hell, swinging is not cheating. They'll always know what the other one is up to. So finally, Janet agrees to it. And Hal picks up a swingers magazine from a newsstand to find the nearest swinging group, which is in Chicago, six hours away. As you can imagine, these drives, especially in the dead of winter, get old really fast. And that's when Hal spots an ad for a local group that's just getting their start. And I think they were advertising Silver Chain in there. It's late 1973, the beginning of the Silver Chain, when Janet and Hal join. You know, they were nice people. And we um, found that There were some that we got along with really well. And actually, even in something like the silver chain, you form cliques. And you have a group of friends that you party with. And that's what we did. We had a sort of a standard group that we partied with for years. Since our family now included two kids. We put two apartments together and the kids would sleep on one side and we could have the party on the other side for a while. And then then it got so that didn't work too well because uh, we decided we wanted even more room. So we built a penthouse and um, that had like five bedrooms and it was very good for partying. On top of the apartment building, you built a penthouse? Yes. 
basically took over the party room and just expanded it. And the original builder of the apartment building did it for us. But it, it had a beamed ceiling. I mean, it was a gorgeous place. Okay, this is my ultimate fantasy. Janet and Hal are basically living like rich soap opera characters. With one small addition, a soundproof wall that divides the kids' area from the adult side. When you would have the parties at your penthouse, uh, how many couples would you invite? Well, 20, 30. 30 couples? Yeah. We had a New Year's Eve wow. party one time <laughs> that there were all these strangers coming that I had never even met that other people said, oh, we're going to bring some friends with us because they, they don't really have anything that's going. And I said, not if they don't bring something to pass around in terms of food, they aren't. So everybody brought food too and their own bottle, of course. And um, I think we had like 80 people, maybe more. I'm not even sure that how many there were. And if you were having a party at your house... Was there certain music you played? Were there, like, was there wine? We just left the television on. And people could watch whatever they wanted. Okay. Interesting. I definitely did not expect people to be fornicating to Hogan's Heroes. It sounds like you assimilated really well into this group yeah. like you were you were open to it well I, you know I wasn't in the beginning but I didn't really have any choice it was if I was going to be married to this guy this is going to be my life so mm-hmm. better make the best of it and I've sort of always been that way make the best of what you can you know you can't always do what you want but you can try and that's what it was I did it my way in a sense, you know. I mean, I was swinging, yes, but my way. Hearing Janet talk about the silver chain all these years later runs an interesting parallel to Diana's story. At the root of it, this isn't what she wanted her life to be either, but she made it work. Which gets me thinking, is it possible that the other women celebrated in the articles of the newsletter weren't really that into it either? And this is a thought that's hard for me to reconcile because the newsletters are written predominantly by women, celebrating each other, giving each other advice. Do you recall receiving the Silver Chain newsletter? I'm sure we did, but I, you know, I never saved them or anything, so I, I couldn't tell you anything about the Silver Chain newsletter. That mm-hmm. part of my memory seems to be lost. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the regular columns in the newsletter is about a group called New Horizons, which was a like a discussion group that was led each month by Carol. Oh yeah. Well, that wasn't something we were very interested in. I think that they felt that this would be a good idea for helping people be more comfortable. I think. But we didn't, we never participated in that. Diana's memory of the newsletter is also fleeting. Even when I show her highlights where she's mentioned, it's as if it's her first time reading the accolades. And here is where I have to stop telling the story I want to and begin listening to what I'm hearing from those who lived it. Because it's beginning to feel like the newsletter was almost like a framing of sorts, by a select group of individuals who wanted to make the silver chain into something that, at least for the people I've spoken with, it simply wasn't. Before I catch my flight back to California, I decide to take a drive by Grandma Trudy's swanky apartment building. And this grand building that once seemed so magical to me, it now has the allure of a three-story state prison. That natural brick exterior is now painted gray and blue in what I assume is an attempt to modernize. And those gorgeous vintage swag lamps are now replaced by recessed lighting. 
But even if that funky lighting was still in place, the magic would still be gone. Because the woman who made this place so fucking fabulous is also gone. But that won't change my memories. And that's the reason why this building, despite its, let's be honest, shit appearance, it still means something to me. And maybe that's the reason why someone held on to the Silver Chain's newsletters and bothered to take out a safe deposit box for the sole reason of storing them. The newsletters, at least for this one individual, held meaning. So despite the real risk of this search going nowhere, I have to follow my belief that there's a story here. So far, definitely not the one I thought I would hear, and probably not something I'm even prepared to hear. But this is something. This is why I need to speak to Carol herself, the author of so many of these articles, the woman whose kids helped to print and mail them out. I need to know if the newsletters I left with Kimmer resonated with Carol in any way. Hours after I return home, I receive a reply. And I said, how is your mom doing? And she said, oh, I thought I messaged you. She passed away. So Carol actually passed away on Friday the 5th of August. She said, I think my mom just really wanted to be back with my dad. And that ever since he passed away, she just hasn't wanted to live. And that's when I find out that Carol is gone. I'm Paul Diddy, and this is Time Capsule, The Silver Chain. Time Capsule is hosted and written by me, Paul Diddy, and is a production of Diversity Hire Limited and Sisa Productions, in collaboration with Feelings & Co. Our executive producers are Jennifer Goyne-Blake, April Shee, and Jack Houston. Our producers are Marcel Malakibu and Nora McInerney, with additional production support from Jacob Maldonado Medina. Jordan Turgeon and Eli Makovetsky are our co-producers, and our engineer is Eric Romani. Time Capsule theme music is composed by Louis Stevens. Need ideas on what to serve when co-hosting a swing party? Visit us at timecapsule.substack.com for newsletter excerpts, listener discussions, bonus episodes, and more. This show is inspired by a GQ article titled The 70s Swingers Club and the Secret Archive It Left Behind from writer Jack Elhai. In addition to Jack's article, special thanks to Lori Williamson and the Minnesota Historical Society for access to the Silver Chain's newsletters. Segments of this episode were recorded at Podcast Play Studio in Long Beach, California. Next time on Time Capsule, The Silver Chain. Hello, I'm Dr. Robert McGinley. I have the pleasure of being president of the Lifestyles Organization, which is an organization devoted to swinging, social recreational sex. Oh, Silver Chain. Yeah. I know a lot about them. You do? Oh, yeah. Sure do.